And he wrote his book to be a witness that no matter where your life starts out, you can decide to have another life. So he was really writing for the world. Welcome to the Life Story Coach podcast, where you'll hear interviews, tips, and advice on the craft and business of personal history and life story writing with your host, Amy Woods Butler. Hi, friends. Welcome back. And if you're new to the show, this is where we talk about growing our business as personal historians. That is, helping clients create life story books and other legacy projects to share with their family, friends, and future generations. Today, we have Dennis Ledoux joining us. Just a quick story uh, before I introduce Dennis. When I first decided to become a life story writer, I um, I went on a hunt, uh, like this mad hunt to look for books to help point me in the right direction and just figure out what I was doing. And today, I still remember the exact spot in the downtown Kansas City Library where I found one of Dennis's books. Actually, I think there, there may have been two books. But I got very lucky because Dennis is a consummate professional, not only as a memoir writer himself, he, he writes beautifully, but also as a businessman and the founder of the Memoir Network. He teaches, he mentors, he does book production, he does life story writing, and he offers some things that can be helpful for us as memoir writing professionals. And that's us people. We are the memoir writing professionals. Dennis, welcome to the Life Story Coach podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your writing journey and how it segued into becoming a memoir professional. Well, I, uh, let's see, I, I was a fiction writer and I produced a, um, a number of, I had a number of stories that became a book. Uh, they were autobiographical fiction and my uh, in my book tour, uh, I'm in Maine, and I did readings all over Maine, and um, I, I, I love to share stories, so I would say, well, in this particular story that I've just read to you from my book, um, this character is really based on my grandmother, and this character is based on my Uncle George, and then I would say, um, can you tell me a story from your own family that is close to the story I just read to you. So my stories were autobiographical fiction, and they they really opened up a discussion. So what would happen is the audience would say, well, my my uncle Ralph, (laughs) and I would get their stories. And it was a really um, a format that was really interactive. And one day I... um, I got a call from a woman who had handled uh, one of these programs, and she said, why don't you and I write a grant with the Maine Humanities Council uh, to see if we could take the show on the road? And uh, what developed was the Turning Memories into Memoirs workshop. So I began via a grant, a government grant. Um, and um, then the next year, I was invited to increase the size of my grant and to submit a new grant. So I went from first year three workshops and working with about 50 people to uh, doing uh, eight workshops and probably working with a couple hundred people. And at the end of the second year, um, you know, I had the workshop down. I had delivered 11 of them. I have a master's in education, so teaching and analyzing teaching and being critical about my teaching was something that I knew how to do. And uh, then I I really uh, 
began launching myself as a, as a professional because at that point, uh, any income that I had had to be derived from uh, the marketing of the workshop and um, the delivery of the workshop. So at that point, the grant came to an end and yes. you were out on your own. That's so interesting that it started with a grant. I'm, I'm wondering today in, you know, in today's climate, if that is a possibility. So the, um, the, the audiences or the, the people who were signing up for the workshops, were they writers? Were they people who just valued family history and they wanted to learn how to, to capture their own history? What kind of people were you serving? Well, they, they were community people. Um, at that point, when I was doing the community workshops, a whole lot of them were people who had never written before, had never thought that they would write, uh, and were stimulated by my presentation, or perhaps they had in, in within them some lingering desire to write family stories. You know, up until 1995, people would come to the workshops and they would say something to me like, I may be nuts, but I want to write a memoir. It really, it really wasn't something that they were comfortable with. It's almost like coming out and saying, I'm gay. I mean, you just didn't go around saying that. And, you know, I want to write a, 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 a workshop, a memoir. I want to do a memoir is something that people felt really uncomfortable. And I noticed the change in the middle 90s. I said 95, but, you know, I don't want to be that precise. But it was in the middle 90s. Um, people began coming to the workshops and they were saying, I want to write a memoir. And they presumed that it wasn't a crazy thing to want to do. And that's that's been a wonderful change in the culture that people um, now understand that that is a really good thing to do, to leave a story for your children and grandchildren. But over that decade, I also went from writing stories for children and grandchildren to working with people who wanted to write for the world, even if it's a small part of the world. Most of the people that I've worked with have produced memoirs of two to 3,000 copies uh, so oh, so th and these are commercially published? Uh, well, uh, actually, the bulk of them have been uh, produced. We have produced them, the Memoir Network. Mm. A few people have gone on to small presses. Um, I'm not aware of anybody who went to a big New York publisher. Uh, most of them uh, ask us to produce the book for them, and they become their own publishers and then proceed to market uh, two to three thousand books uh, using uh, presentations, talks, going to libraries, mm. going to uh, clubs, groups, literary groups, uh, um, fellowship halls for churches. Uh, and in that way, they sell five, 10, 15, 20 books. And first thing you know, they've sold out. Well, you know, that's that actually brings me to something that I was that I've been curious about because I think. I, I think there is definitely a difference between writing your memoirs or having somebody write them for you. Well, right there, that's a difference. Um, but the memoirs that are gathered as um, an act of recollection and reminiscence and trying to share your values, the life lessons that you've learned, the, just the difference between what life looks like today and what life looks like when the storyteller was growing up. Um, I think that is a different type of writing than what somebody who may be 
um, coming to you know a workshop or um, who is trying to write their memoirs. One seems to fall more into kind of a journalistic way of telling a story, and the other uh, a more um, creative nonfiction. And is that something that you found? You know that there's this difference between the books that are really intended for the for the children and the grandchildren, and the books that people are then going off and publishing two and three thousand and and taking out into the world. Well, there is. I think people who are writing primarily for children and grandchildren. Um, are more interested in who did what, when, and what grandma uh, did that was funny. Um, their vignettes, uh, their family stories, and they have less of a need to explore the psychology, the depth psychology, uh, the gestalt of the times. Somebody, on the other hand, who is writing to 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 reach the world i mean some of the work some of the books that i have worked with uh have been well in the early days i was working with people who were wanted to write world war 2 books you know having been mm-hmm. in the holocaust or uh one of my very first books was a, a woman who was uh a, a russian ethnic who had grown up in the ukraine and uh, hated the communists and so, as she said, we couldn't, we didn't believe that the Germans were doing what they were doing uh, because uh, the Germans were fighting the communists. So they were our good guys. And she said, <clears throat> Germany and landed in a concentration camp. And I learned really quickly. And her book was really about surviving and of coming to consciousness of the world. Uh, um, and she ended up in the United States. And another another book that's a, a war, you know aiming for the world is a an African American who grew up in West Virginia. His father was a self ordained. I don't know if the word ordained actually would be used, but a self um, recruited minister. And uh, this uh, this man, when he was young, um, just decided for himself that his parents' life, uh, the poverty. Uh, the segregation. He, he wasn't going to live that life and actually became a multimillionaire. And he wrote his book to be a witness that no matter where your life starts out, you can decide to have another life. So he was really writing for the world. And do you think when when somebody has that intention, so if, if we're looking at it from who is the intended audience, if it's family, if it's a legacy book for family, or if it's something, a message um that somebody wants to put out into the world. Do you think that, um, well, first off, did you, were you working as a writing coach with them? Did you help them actually with the writing? What was your part in that? And do you think that somebody, a memoir professional can take on the job of writing somebody's story when it's really intended to have that, you know, the gestalt of the times and have that, um, the, be intended for the wider world. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. This this man, um, his book, um, um, which which was called from coal mine uh, from coal fields to oil fields, um, he ended mm-hmm. up making a hell of a lot of money in oil. Um, he um, he really had he had the instinct to include a lot of the time. So he his book had a lot on. Uh, on segregation, the breakdown of segregation, uh, affirmative action, uh, how uh, how it went from um, 
I don't know, the early days of affirmative action, moving on. Uh, so he had that, and he acknowledged in his book that where he was in history, he said he said at one point if he had been five years earlier, he probably would still be a um, you know a bookkeeper in some little company in West Virginia, and if it had been five years later, he he would have had all the competition. He was just on the cusp, and he, he he was really able to be honest. And I think that kind of honesty when you're writing a book. Um, to really put it out there, uh, and he understood the gestalt uh, of of his life, and he was a very intelligent man, and he was able to grasp the opportunities. But not only he didn't do the pretend I'm a self-made man. I mean, he was a self-made man. You know, I mean, he he had done a tremendous, tremendous job in his life of of getting himself to another place, and 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 yet he understood that. His self-made was within a context of boosts, um, so he was he was really terrific uh, for that. Um, and and what was your role with with that project? Did you help him write it? I helped him to smooth it all out. So he had no, he really didn't have any sense of uh, foreshadowing of suspense. Um, you know, he had a first marriage in which his a wife, his wife in his first marriage, she had a real poverty mentality. So if he made an extra $100, she, she had no sense of saving that $100 against the future. She spent that $100. And at one point, he was just very discouraged about no matter how much he worked, they had no more money. And I was able to help him plug into his discouragement and to say lines like, you know, finish a chapter with saying, how could this change? How can my wife, uh, how could I help my wife to understand? And in the end, he wasn't able to. Uh, they got a divorce and, and then he married another woman who was just his his level of functioning, you know, and the two of them were like a rocket ship. <laughs> it was wonderful to see them. Well, it, it, you know, that I think that's interesting how it can be some just very small tweaks where we bring in, you know, if you know what you're doing with writing, you can bring in those very small elements of foreshadowing or of, you know, building suspense. And it doesn't have to be something very large. It doesn't have to be a whole rewrite. Tell me a little bit about how you spend your time, because I know that you, you know, you mentor, you coach, um, you do you do editing, you do book production. Um, and I think I read someplace mm-hmm. where you said that editing and co-authoring are your cash cows. So can you tell us just about how you, uh, how do you segment your workday? Like uh, where do yes. all these things fall in for you? Okay. I'm going to address this with the audience that, that is listening to us in mind. Um, one is I think you have to prioritize your cash cow. So where is it? that you earn income. So I can have all kinds of favorite projects, um, but I shouldn't start my day with them. I should start my day by what produces income. And in my case, uh, I came down to years ago that what I need to do is to have a minimum of 10 hours a week of billable time. So every week has to be characterized by 10 hours. That's my that's my ground uh, level. Uh, I can do more than 10 hours, but I cannot do less than 10 hours. So if it is 
Oh my gosh, Dennis, that's I years ago I set 20 billable hours as my goal and I regularly do not meet it. So it Yeah, so can I can I coach you a bit? Do you do you set say if uh, you that's 4 hours a day? Well, okay, so it's um it is if you do five, uh, if you have a five day work week. And what I have um, done for quite a few years is a six day work week. And it's, it's not how I don't want to turn this into a coaching session for me. But it I, um, for a long time, I didn't recognize that as a self employed person, I needed to really safeguard my non work time. So the the boundaries were bleeding all over the place. And then I realized that I needed to have at least one day that was absolutely work-free. So Saturdays is my work-free day. Except Sundays, for today. Well, yeah, but this is fun. <laughs> this isn't work. <laughs> so it's okay that I'm starting my day with this, with, with talking to you. Um, but I, I, um, yeah, so now my my next goal is to really keep it confined to a five day work week. But I find that Sundays is you know it's the time for doing business kind of things, for doing some planning, and um, and that's not billable time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but anyways, I I kind of interrupted you. Um, it, uh, my point was that I think that it's it probably for me would be more healthy to if I'm if I'm not meeting 20 billable hours a week than to, but I'm still making a living, you know, I'm still doing okay, then I probably need to revisit that goal so that I don't always feel like I'm, you know, failing with with the goal. That is very important. What I keep in mind are two phrases. um, And again, I think everybody would do well is to um, uh, under promise and over deliver. Mm -hmm. So if you, to me, two hours a day, is very realistic. I can do two hours. At the end of the week, I can do 10 hours. If I have not done my 10 hours on Saturday, I do my 10 hours. Like the week that we're just ending, I had an hour extra. And it's not that I intended the hour extra, it's that I had some coaching calls and I needed to do editing for that, uh, for the, the people that I was coaching. So, I, st- I do my week is structured around those 10 hours and I have found that I'm just calmer. I feel better about my time um, if I do those 10 hours. Now this week um, I-, I work with editors so I'm not the only editor. I have four editors um, that I work with and, and I'm always looking for another editor. So somebody listening to us who would like to connect with me, that would be great. Um, I work with four editors, and so I get the office, uh, the company gets a portion of their fees. And so this week, in addition to my 40 hours, I had um, cuts of their editing time, plus I sold um, several packages. And so all of that was added to my income, but I have found that if I do my 10 hours, which I can control, I cannot control if other people will buy my products or not. But if I can do my 10 hours, then I am, um, I'm happy. Uh, I'm, uh, and I know that every week I, I, I will sell something else, but I, I just never know what it is. And what kind of work are you doing during those 10 hours? Um, I have coaching calls and I also, I have editing uh, right now, I don't have a ghostwriting client, but I do have uh, editing and, and coaching. So those are kind of permeable. It's, sometimes it's very hard to tell where you cross over from 
coaching to editing. I did have one strictly coaching call this week from a man who's really having trouble organizing himself, and he just wanted to talk to me about the inner game of writing. And and so we spent, uh, well, 50 minutes, because um, it didn't add up to an hour. We, we just... We were set at 15 minutes, and that's what I always do. You know, if uh, if the coaching call or the editing call comes to an end at 32 minutes, well, that's the end of it. I have a lot of other work that I can do. Um, so generally, we we uh, discuss manuscripts. And as I said to a woman um, two weeks ago, it was very vivid, and she she was saying, well, this is really hard for me to hear. And I said, well, I think you have to really, really come to terms of why have you hired me? You have not hired me to be your friend. You have not hired me to tell you your manuscript is great. You have hired me to give you an honest feedback on how I, who have read hundreds and hundreds of books, how I relate to your manuscript. And I said, as you notice, I always give you suggestions for improvement. I just don't tell you what doesn't work. I give you suggestions. And, and you know, she agreed with me. And that's what I would say to people uh, listening to us. Do not avoid the hard moments in your calls. Mm-hmm. Just be hard, hard love, tough love. Um, do it honestly do it lovingly, and always offer suggestions. It's not enough to say your dialogue is lousy. You might say, (laughs) you know, make it shorter, Uh, particularly in dialogue. Don't give information in dialogue. Dialogue is a place to give emotion. If you have information, put it in indirect dialogue. Put it into your narrative. So that kind of feedback uh, leaves the client able to leave the call and and make change. Right. Well, and I think that can be for listeners that that that's on both sides of the table. You know, if you are if we have any listeners who are working as personal historians and they they do the sort of co-authoring, the coaching somebody through writing their own life story, um, so they're the ones giving the feedback. But also, you know, I've used editors to look at my books to go through books that I'm writing for clients. And I agree with you. You you have to, you know, you can't take any of it personally. It's it's much easier said than done. But if you if you hook up with a good editor and you're sending your work to that editor, you have to trust that that editor wants to see the book be just as good as you want to, as you want it to be. So they're not giving you they're they're not um criticizing things um because they want to knock you down they want to help you make the strongest manuscript that you can um but it's it's pretty tough when you when you first see those things and i know you know most editors um because they're being paid, you know, if, if you're doing this not through a publishing house, but if you're just hiring a private editor, you know, they realize that they're being paid by the client. So, you know, there's, I, I've, the ones that I've worked with know how to highlight the good stuff as well as the stuff that needs work, um, which is also important because, you know, writing is hard and it, and our egos are always tied up with it, no matter how hard we try to separate the two. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Well, well, yes, I, I always, uh, I think it is an important thing to mention when there are good things in the manuscript, to always mention that. I, I, I don't know how you work, but I work with Microsoft Track Changes, so I have these little balloons on the right-hand margin that I can put notes on, and, um, you know, the client accepts or rejects or interacts. And I find that sometimes... I, I will have a suggestion and it will lead to a discussion with the client and what will result is a third suggestion, uh, no, a third point of view um, that's neither mine nor his or hers, but it somehow has mutated and, and then there we are on the phone line and we've come up with another solution that the client feels really good about. So how do you, um, you said that sometimes the two overlap, but what really is the difference between coaching and editing? Well, um, coaching usually proceeds without much of a manuscript. And um, I consider editing, uh, it's hard to distinguish. Uh, clients want to have a distinguishing um, a separation, but in the practice, uh, what I call developmental editing is is really coaching. Uh, coaching is probably more focused on the client, more focused on building the client up and carrying the client along, and editing is probably more focused on just the manuscript itself. Um, I do have people who come to me, like the man that I referred to who um, needed wanted coaching to get himself going. Uh, he's having a really, really hard time accepting the validity of his desire to write. He's um, he's overcome with who am I to think that I should write, and yet, and yet there is something in him that is impelling him to write, and yet he has this overwhelming self-doubt. And in his case, what I have suggested to him, what I suggested when we talked this week, is that he stopped discussing with himself whether he's going to write or not. It's possible to say, I will write one hour a day, two hours a day. I suggested one hour to him because he's finding it very difficult and uh, not to visit it. it. It's no longer up for discussion. And uh, he is calling me every day when he starts to write. Uh, oh. And at the end of his writing. So it's just, it's a 30 second phone call and he is calling me up. And I said to him, I, at this point, I don't care if you sit down at your computer and stare at the computer for one hour. That is what you are doing during that one hour. Can you do it? And he said, well, I, I can stare at my computer for one hour. And I said, I, I almost can guarantee you, you won't be staring at your computer. You're going to be writing something. And in fact, he has, he has done that. We've, at this point, we met on Wednesday and he's, he called me on Thursday, called me on Friday. And uh, on both days he wrote something. So coaching is that kind of support. Uh, editing is more focused on the manuscript, but it slips into coaching all the time. And I'm very careful <laughs> to say to my clients, let's, let, let's not get caught in whether it's coaching or editing. It's all about producing a manuscript. Mm -hmm. And isn't that funny? I mean, talking about that, man, the things that we feel we need to give ourselves permission for, you know, probably if somebody said, I'm going to sit down and watch TV for an hour or two a night, they're not, they're not having a tussle in their, in their mind about whether that's 
something that they need to give themselves permission for, but to do a creative endeavor. And I'm guessing, you know, kind of going back to what we we were talking about earlier, you said that in the mid 90s, you saw the shift of um, where people then were starting to freely say, I want to write a memoir, not Mm -hmm. not you know, fighting with themselves, like, is my life worthy of this? Or is my time worthy of this? Um, I don't think that that has hit fully in the Midwest, which is where I'm at. Um, I still regularly encounter people, especially if it's um, the adult children who want to hire me to do their parents' stories. Um, I, I think it has to do with the generation, possibly. But there are still so many people who say, why would I want to do that? You know, my I, my life is just ordinary. And I have to tell people, well, you know, everybody's life is ordinary. We all think our life is ordinary because it's our life. But for anybody else, it's not. And, and you know, it's there's still some selling that goes on to, to try to um, to encourage people to see what a gift they are giving. So it's not, um, it's not something that they are doing out of a sense of narcissism, but it's truly a gift to give to their family and to generations of people who will never be able to know them personally. Um, and yeah, it, it goes back to that. What do I give myself permission to do? Yes. Well, you, you mentioned kids who are buying, you know, adult children who are buying for their parents. Uh, I have always found that to be a very hard sell. Um, the the adult children want the uh, the product, um, but it's not the parents' project. I've, and I have always found that if a person does not approach me, um, that it doesn't become successful. I have time and again had adult children uh, approach me and then they get back to me and they say, well, my dad doesn't want to do it. My mom, I just can't mm. get her to do it. Um, third party, um, third parties are really very, very hard. And what I do now uh, is I ask, I say, okay, you can deal with your parents, but uh, there's no sign on until your parents actually call me and tell you know, and we worked something out, and and actually, parents who want to write their stories get in touch with me, and sometimes they will tell me my son will be helping with this, or my son will be sending you a check, and but that's so different from the adult child getting in touch with me. So, um, that's interesting. I should, you know, maybe that's something that I should be keeping track of because, you know, I'm I'm approached the, writing somebody's writing a book for somebody is not an inexpensive venture. It's, you know, I mean, you, you, we both know that writing a book just takes an awful lot of time. Um, So, so when I sit down and meet with people who are interested in having a book done, you know, there's very, very often they find that it's out of their budget or for whatever reason they, you know, they decide not to proceed with it. Um, Luckily I've, consistently found people enough people that do want to go through with it and put the time and the the money and in, to invest in it um several of those have been started by the adult children approaching me but what i have found is that um usually they will think of it as you know i'm i'm doing this as a christmas gift or i'm doing this as an anniversary gift or something like that and they'll they'll be focused on having you know this uh, something small mm-hmm. and um they'll be focused on the end product the book and there there has 
there have been multiple times where the project starts off as the client, you know, the one paying the invoices is the adult child or the in-law, you know, the son-in-law or daughter-in-law. Um, and then the storyteller takes over the project because they recognize that they want this to be bigger. They want it to be a, you know, a full life story and they're less focused on the end product and more on the process of telling their story. So for me, I have had quite a bit of success where it starts with the adult child, but it usually morphs into something different and it's usually taken over then by the, the storyteller, the parent. Good, good. Um, a comment that I would have, not on your experience, but I, in terms of creating a business of memoir uh, writing, uh, helping people to write their memoirs, um, it's important to have a grade, a gradation of products. So you have uh, writing a memoir. I usually tell uh, clients that it will cost roughly eight to twelve thousand dollars per hundred pages, and depending on how active the person is, for this is ghost writing. So depending on how active, I had one man who. Um, even insisted that I read the story back to him. He didn't even read it. So his his costs were more in the $12,000 range. Uh, whereas I've had other people who take the text that I return to them and, uh, and really change the text and really do work that is an editor's work, and their, and their costs are more down to 8000 But as you have said, people will approach... Uh, me for ghostwriting and then realize that it's really out of their budget. And so you can offer them coaching or editing, which is a really a lower product. I have oftentimes felt that um, the average, it, it might be in the five to $10,000 range that somebody uh, approaches me and by the time they have their end product. And, and that can be beyond the cost um, the um, the budget, and so to have another product that might sell for seven fifty or five hundred or three hundred dollars um, is also very good. So I think one of the things for anybody establishing um, a company is to have uh, a, a number of products at different price points, so that generally speaking, you start at the highest price point. And then you work down with the client. So I have had clients who have bought at much lower price points, and that's fine. That's what they can afford. But if 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 you do not have that as a business owner, uh, I think you lose a lot of clients. I agree. And, you know, the nice thing about having the different price points and the different types of services. So, you know, whether full on ghostwriting for, for a life story or, you know, helping them as they do it. Um, the other advantage is that the stories are getting recorded, you know. So if somebody does not have however much you're going to charge for, for a full life story, but if you are willing to um, work with them in a different capacity rather than the full on ghostwriter, then they still get to record their life mm -hmm. stories. And <clears throat> that's what I tell people. And it, it, you know, I, I used to do a lot, um, a lot of smaller projects. Um, but I found that this was at the beginning of my career and I probably had not thought it through well enough where, you know, I could have done much better coaching, but what I did at the beginning was some, what I called lightly edited transcripts. So I did the interviews, which I love doing, and it gave me great practice on interviewing. But of course, then, you know, what, what I was telling them was lightly edited, you know, I was going through 
heavily in editing. Um, they weren't getting a book, you know, they weren't getting something printed and bound, but they were getting something that was much more polished. So I was spending a lot more time than what I was billing for. But, you know, the flip side was that I was getting a lot of practice. Um, I was learning the craft, um, how, how to build these stories. But I like your idea. And if somebody does want to get into doing this and they want to have those liar, pr- lower price points, so say they, they want to start with coaching, how, what, are, what are good ways of doing that? I, I know that you, you, know, you started off giving workshops. Do you think that that is a good way to get your get yourself visible in the community as a personal historian and maybe finding clients that you could um, that you could coach or or work as an editor for absolutely when I, I I don't deliver I don't do workshops anymore but I did workshops for probably 15 years and what I consistently found was that about 40 percent of the people who came to workshops bought a subsequent product. Oftentimes it was uh, editing. So they produced a manuscript, the workshop came to an end, I had an introductory and then I had an, uh, what I called an advanced workshop. And when that came to an end, they could take the advance again, but sometimes people would, would just say, um, I need more than, than I'm getting here and they would come on as editing or coaching clients. So 40% is, is pretty good. Um, so it was, a real, um, it was a real access to clients. I found that speaking um, is a really good way, speaking at libraries and at clubs and fellowship halls and all that um, is a good way to find clients. I, um, you know, one year I went out and did four uh, evening speaking gigs, and I got about twenty-two thousand dollars of work out of those uh, four evenings. So wow. it is a lot of work. Uh, well, not last year, but the year before, I went out and I, I I only did two evenings, and I didn't get anything from either of them. So it's a toss-up. It, but I, if I were starting out, I definitely would. I I don't do much of that anymore. I enjoy speaking in public. Um, so I still do them when asked, um, but I, I don't seek them out. Um, I, I find that uh, it was a very, very, very good uh, source of students. Uh, when you're beginning, it's going to be local. It's going to be your source of, uh, of clientele. So when you did the four speaking gigs, um, what was the topic? Well, it was it was how to start, uh, how to write your memoir. Five, five. There were five talking points uh, on writing a memoir, and um, so people would. So I, well, I, first of all, you don't depend on the venue for your outreach. You be sure you send them a press release, the bio, a photo, um, and it's a good thing to say something like a book will be given away or something that you have uh, that you can give away. If you have your own book, you give that away. If you don't have that, you can give away a half hour of coaching or something, uh, but it only be to people who are in attendance. Um, so that can be something that can be put in the advertising, uh, the outreach. Um, then I always... Um, you know, I always begin by going around the room and chatting with people. So you show up, 
20, 25 minutes early, and you be sure that you're set up. Uh, for me, a setup includes books in the back of the room, and it, has, it should be right near the door so they can't walk in without seeing your books, and they can't walk out without seeing your books mm. or whatever you have. Then I go around the room, and I chat with everybody. Uh, I say, oh, my name's Denny Ledoux, and what is your name? And, you know, and why are you here this evening? So by the time I talk, sometimes if, you know, if I have under 30 people in the room, I, I can have talked to, uh, to, uh, to everyone. And, uh, and that really creates mm -hmm. a, an intimacy that is, is really a, a wonderful thing. And then I have my five talking points. And if you have a book or if you have a book that you sell, um, I know that my book, Turning Memories into Memoirs, is something that anybody can buy at a discount uh, and then resell, uh, resell at a, at a profit. Well, so whether it's that book or some other book that you've chosen, uh, if you have your own book, open it up. So if you're talking about dialogue, uh, how to write dialogue, you open it up to your book and you read some dialogue. So you establish your text as a... Um, as a premier text, as a text that people should be paying attention to. And then you can mention, and that book's available at the back of the room. New memoir writers are really taken in, as they should, I, uh, with the service that they're rendering, with the social work aspect almost, the good that they're bringing. Um, and that's that was my motivation. You know, we all were, if we're in this business, um, were people, people, were, if we really wanted to make a lot of money, we perhaps would become stockbrokers or something else, you know, but we love people. <laughs> Some, somebody that I just talked to recently said it's, um, a, a, another podcast, um, guest said it's, you know, people that are drawn to this business, they're, they're more to serve than to sell, you know, that, and, and I agree, you know, it's, it's kind of just how your personality is, um, you know, what your lodestar is. And, and I, I agree, you know, if you're, if we are here to help people tell their stories, um, hopefully we can do it and support ourselves doing it. And I absolutely think that we can, um, but that's never going to be the primary motivation. I don't think. It's a background. It's there. It's what led me. But at a certain point, I realized that if I was going to continue doing this work that I loved and didn't go uh, into some other business of selling insurance or something uh, during the day so I could do it in the evening, I would have to make it be a profitable venture. It's a little bit like to use a, an image or a metaphor. If you had uh, an, an inoculation against a deadly disease and somebody had that deadly disease or a lot of people had that deadly disease, you could, you could give it away for free to a few people and then you couldn't afford it. You couldn't make it anymore. Or you could say, okay, if I don't sell it, I can only give it away to 100 people. Mm. I can't give it away to 10,000 people, to 100,000 people. So if you think of that analogy, if you cannot make your memoir business into something that allows you to live your life in some comfort, um, you know, it doesn't have to be penthouse comfort, but it should be a comfort that makes you feel good about your life. You're not going to continue doing it. You're going to say, oh, I'll do it when I retire or when you retire. Right. I'd rather do workshops and be a bag boy at the grocery store. And, 
you know, and I, I, I think that's what we have to, to keep in mind. If you do not sell, one is you're being of less service to people because you can help mm-hmm. fewer people uh, because you're simply not going to be able to continue. So learning how to sell uh, is something that I think all of us have got to learn and it is something that I, I feel so much better about. I remember the first time a woman asked me for a discount. Uh, in a service and she she said oh can I have a discount this is so wonderful I know you can help me but I can't afford to have you help me I said do you have any children and she said yes I said do you have any siblings she said yes I said well these are people who are going to receive the memoir that you're writing I said how about asking them to subscribe at the tune of say five hundred or a thousand dollars a piece and uh, you know you get five ten people to contribute to, to your book. And she said, oh, I couldn't ask them to give uh, their hard-earned money to you, uh, to, to me. And I said, but you are asking me to take money out of my children's uh, life, you know, food out of their mouth, heat out of their home so that I can write your memoir. And she said, I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's a great story. My my theory is that women have a bit of a harder time. And I know that there's plenty of women who don't. But in general, um, I think women have a harder time um, valuing and, and holding on to the value of what they do. And we have to learn. I know that I and a lot of people who enter this business, we have to, you know, because if we haven't, especially if we haven't come from a professional background, um, or a business oriented background, we have to learn those skills of valuing what we're doing and sticking to it. And, you know, when, when they come and ask for a, a, a discount, I, I love the way that you put that. I love the way that you turned it on her and not turned it on her, but you, you turned it around to illustrate what was, what she was really asking of you. It's one of those things that when people who are, working a nine to five job and they think it's, you know, they, they want to do something different and they think that they want to be self-employed. That's one of those things that we have to consider because it's a skill that you really have to hone. It's, you know, the valuing what you're doing, sending out the invoices, believing that you're, you are billing for a service that you know, demands to be paid for. Um, and I don't think it comes naturally to an awful lot of people. So I'm glad to hear that you, I'm glad to hear you address that. Well, one of the things I, I made a little rule for myself, which I'm sharing to, with everybody and you can all adopt it and you don't even have to credit me for it, but mm. do not mm. care for someone else's memoir more than they care for it themselves. And if a, if, a, if a person really cares about the memoir, funding the work on that memoir is up to them. It is not up to me with discounts. It's not up to me to find a sponsor for them. It's not up to me to do anything but to hold my line and, and, and to wait for them. And I sometimes will tell people, um, you know, you can, uh, you can expect me to be here in a year or two. And... Uh, you know, I, I, I no longer really do the kind of discussion, but for people who are listening to us and who are still struggling with that concept, I remember saying to another person, um, 
do you work on weekends? And the person said, no. And I said, well, you could probably get a job on a Saturday. I knew that we were at the end of our discussion. And I said, you could probably get a job on a Saturday and Sunday. And at the end of a year or two, you would have the money put aside for your memoir. And again, I was being asked to subsidize to care more about the memoir than that person obviously did. Um, so that's one comment that I want to make. And the other comment is if if you or anybody else listening to us knows the Myers-Briggs type indicator, the feeler um, is um, the person, you know, there's a thinker and the feeler, and people who get involved in memoir work are feelers. Uh, you know, uh, thinkers, I don't think, uh, have other access to their work. They do other work. But feelers uh, are really, again, people-oriented. And when you re- refer to women, 60% of the feelers are women and 40% are men. Um, so I think if we, if we think in terms of feeler, um, then I think we narrow the, <clears throat> the task that as feelers, we have tremendous, um, tremendous gifts in terms of being able to identify uh, with our, our clients. Um, and a lot of us are intuitor feelers. And I know for myself, people say to me all the time, how do you know that? How do you know that about me? Uh, and I say, actually, I don't mm-hmm. know it about you. I'm intuiting you at some level. I have a sense that, that is true. And, and that's, Probably people listening to us are shaking their heads right now and saying, oh, that's, that's me. I, I, I seem to have a sense of where people are at. And, and so we don't want to struggle against that. We want to build on that. And we have, as writers, um, we have the sense of the observant self. When, when you're writing, you're observing yourself writing. You're observing what you're doing with your characters, your, with your action, how you are foreshadowing, creating suspense. That observant self that looks at what we are doing and makes that we become better and better at writing is the same observant self that you can bring to bear to creating your business, uh, your memoir business. How did I do? Is this, is this profitable? If I do this, you know, one woman had uh, uh, came to me for a, a business coaching and she had this plan that when I broke it down to her, when I said, well, how much are you going to charge for it? And uh, it turned out that she would have to do like for the number of clients that she wanted for the money that she wanted to earn every year, she would have had to have done 45 hours a week of coaching. So the observant self, I was able to help her to observe that she needed to raise her prices. She needed to have different price points, not only in her hourly, but in some of the products that she was offering. Um, and so that's what we need to do to have that observant self and to say, how does it add up? And if it doesn't add up, um, you're going to quit. It's going to stop. You, you can't keep doing this if it doesn't add up, not only emotionally, because I get people all the time who say, I love doing it, but I know you can't do it. Well, I'm here to tell you, and you are too, to say, yes, you can do it. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is the way that I always have it in my mind is that the there's the it's it's a cycle and it's just continuous you you plan you act you review and you revise and then you you know you do some more planning and then you do the thing and then you have to you always have to be looking and reviewing and seeing what is working and what is not for a, for a while i i'm looking at my my 
desktop right now and I have all of these yellow stickies because I have a terrible memory. So, but for a while I had a sticky there that said, you can either be their friends or you can do a good job. And what I meant by that was, um, I, if, if I, you know, cut hours off of invoices, if I'm all, if I'm caring more about the book than they are, uh, in the form of their investment, my clients meaning, um, then I'm not going to be able to continue and I'm not going to be able to serve the people that want my services, you know? So it's a hard lesson to learn for somebody who, you know, is a feeler and I don't know, I guess maybe likes to be liked a little bit too much. Um, so I really appreciate the the words of wisdom about, about, you know, recognizing that if you want to do this for a living, you have to treat it as a business. Um, so, what are we're getting kind of close to the end of our time, but if you had to give somebody who's just starting out as a memoir professional, if you if you could give them just two or three things to do at the beginning, um, what would you recommend? What I would do if I were starting off is I would assess my writing level. When I started off doing this work, I had already won a main. Um, fiction writer award from the Maine Arts Commission. So my writing, I, I was confident in my writing. Uh, and then the next year, I won an individual writing fellowship. So I was confident. But if you're not confident in your writing, um, I think you need to belong to writers groups. Uh, you need to have your, your writing critiqued. One thing that you can also do is to Find somebody whose memoir is significant to you. So I would say your mother, your father, um, a grandmother, somebody, an aunt, an uncle, somebody that you know that you would benefit personally from having the memoir written. So um, I know that I wrote my mother's memoir. It, it, I published it in 2014. So it, I didn't do it in this optic, but I got so much out of uh, writing my mother's memoir. She she just enjoyed it. She was in a nursing home at the end, and she would sell her book to visitors. It was wonderful. She, That's great. <laughs> she called me up and she'd say, hey, kiddo, bring five more books. <laughs> so if, you, if somebody listening to us would write a memoir, you, you will practice interviewing, you will practice writing, uh, you will observe the reaction of the people you're working with. So I would say produce a memoir. I would not do it if, you know, I don't know, to do it for a stranger and to, to write a 150, 200 page memoir for a stranger. It won't, you'll feel burdened by it. But if you do it for a relative and you know that you're going to want the book yourself, um, great. Writing your own memoir is a value, but not of a value in terms of helping yourself. I think that you need the feedback that you would get from writing somebody else's memoir. Uh, you might also work with somebody at the beginning and doing an exchange. I'll, I'll read, uh, I'll critique your book, you critique my book. Um, so this is kind of the prep work. Once you feel that you're at a level uh, where you're, you're confident about getting a client, um, I would go out. And, and do uh, programs at libraries, uh, programs uh, wherever there are speakers. Chamber of Commerce has speakers, although they're not a great site because they're, uh, I've done that and they tend to be um, 
oh, I don't know, they haven't come to learn to write memoirs. Whereas if you go to a, um, to a writing group, for instance, um, like there was a, a, commun- a group here called the Women's Literary Union, you know, there are people who are interested in writing. Anyway, I would find places, venues, and um, uh, I, would, I, I would announce that I, have an, uh, that I'm, uh, that I am uh, offering an introductory rate, like I will do the first, uh, um, I don't know, first number of hours at a lower rate. And I think it's almost inevitable that you have to start mm-hmm. at the lower rate. And depending on where you are, uh, you will uh, you will have a different introductory rate. I, I would think that probably anywhere from um, 25 to $40 an hour might be where you start. Uh, and then... Um, you know, with subsequent mm-hmm. clients, you add uh, five to ten dollars an hour until you are at a level that will continue to attract people uh, where you live. Um, I mean, I know people. I, I, I've spoken to memoir writers who live in New York City and in uh, in Los Angeles and Chicago, and you know, they're they're saying, "Oh, I can't possibly live if I don't charge one hundred and forty dollars an hour." Well. $140 an hour is not going to wash in many, uh, many communities. Uh, it just, it just is too much. Mm-hmm. Um, but it actually does in some communities. I mean, I, uh, that's not my rate, but I, I do know of people who are working at that rate and not communities on the coasts either. I think, you know, part of it, um, part of it is you have to know who your clientele is and um, any community there are, there's going to be some people who who have the the um, discretionary income to pay what you feel like your experience level demands, um, and those kinds of projects when you land them, I mean they they can they can sustain you for a while. But I don't think that we should automatically assume that if we're living in a smaller place or you know we're, if we're not in one of the really big cities that we're not going to be able to demand a a, a fairly good rate and um, one. One thing for listeners, you know, you can check and see what the going uh, business writing rate is in your community. And that's a good benchmark. I agree, Dennis, absolutely that I I would never start at the rate that you think that you're going to end up charging um, because I don't think it's fair to the to the client. Uh, if you don't have all of your skills really well honed, then you need to build that into your rate. And um not that you have to do it for free, but mm-hmm. until you get up to speed and know, and to speed, I'm saying that actually literally too, because you're going to get faster at doing some of these things, faster writing, faster editing, not faster interviewing, obviously. But, um, well, I think that you said before we talked that you have a package for people who are memory or uh, memoir professionals. Is that right? Yes, we do have a memoir professional package uh, that is available on our site. Um, you'd have to follow the menus, uh, the, go to the homepage, thememoirnetwork.com, thememoirnetwork.com, and uh, follow the menus there. Um, we, uh, you know, uh, the memoir professional package has a, a manual, which is a which we call the speaker's manual. And I really emphasize that as a great way to launch yourself. Um, so if, if somebody were to say, I'm only going to get one, that certainly would be where I would start. The other thing that um, we had talked about earlier uh, was that we also offer 
uh, an affiliate uh, relationship with different um, writers. So if you're starting out, you don't have your book, uh, you don't have many products, it can be very beneficial for you to sell another uh, company's um, books, tapes, uh, programs on your site. We offer a 50% uh, discount. So on our, for instance, on our book, Turning Memories into Memoirs, which is $24.95, you, you garner um, uh, $12 and uh, was it 98 cents, 99 cents a book that you sell. So you consider writing your own book. Uh, will you be making $12.99 uh, on the book? Um, so it, it can be very attractive if you uh, are interested in monetizing your site. Not everybody wants to do that. I can understand that. But I would repeat that as you look at your different offerings, your blog, uh, your website, your programs, you always have to be thinking in terms of if I can't monetize this, uh, I'm going to end up being a bad boy or a bad girl at the, the grocery store. And if that's what I want, fine, go for it. Uh, but if what I want to do is continue this work, I, I had one woman who was uh, a turning memories into memoirs teacher. She taught our workshop and she was, uh, I think, 78, the last um, workshop she offered. Oh, there was another woman who was in her 80s in Baltimore. Um, and, and she just kept doing it, you know, because she loved it. And and, and the woman in, uh, in Baltimore um you know, um, every fall, every spring, she would order uh, a dozen books, which she would resell to her students. And those were the Turning uh, Memories into Memoirs book that you wrote? Turning Turning Memories into Memoirs. I have my hand on it right now. It's a beautiful book. Um, and you, uh, you have excerpts from people that have taken your workshops. So it's to illustrations of the different points that you're going through, different skills that you can work on. You have exercises in there, which can be really helpful. Um it's it's a it's a good book for a, a personal historian to have. So you're it's geared more towards people writing their own memoirs, but it's absolutely something that personal historians can can benefit from. And I, I would just say that our blog, if anybody is listening to us and they're just starting out, um, not quite sure yet about their writing, our blog um, with the memoir writers blog, which is affixed to our site, has uh, over five hundred articles on writing. And we also have a memoir professional blog, which has um, articles. So I would recommend in terms of your own education uh, that you do that. We have also a, a section, a, a, a free membership section called My Memoir Education. And, and you go, it's free. And when you go in, uh, I don't know, you must have up to two dozen downloadable items. And sometimes people say, why do you give these away for free? And uh, I just think uh, it's called um, content marketing. Uh, first of all, um, there isn't a finite number of people who will invest. Every year, there are new people who want to write their memoirs. So it's not like uh, I, I don't have that poverty mentality that if I help somebody else, it means that I don't get it. And you, there are a lot of people who just read through the blog. They go through our free membership and... They write me a letter two years later, thanks for all the help, I've published my memoir, and that makes me feel good. Um, and so if there's somebody listening to us, they want to get the free material, uh, go for it. 
Great. Okay. And I will include the links in the show notes um, for on, on my website. So if anybody wants to get a hold of Dennis or see all of these wonderful things that he's talking about, these resources, um, you can check out the show note, the, the links in the show notes. Dennis, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. It's been, it's been my pleasure, and if there's anybody out there who's struggling with memoir, uh, prof- being a memoir professional or is thinking of it, I just want to say, you can do it. You can even do it your way, but it requires being an observant self and to constantly evaluate what works for you and to do more of it and to evaluate what doesn't work for you and to do less of it. And that does it for our interview with Dennis Ledoux. You can find links to his website, his books, and all of his teaching materials by heading over to thelifestorycoach.com and looking at the show notes for today's episode. I'll also make sure to include a link to his memoir professional package. It's got a lot of really great information and some recordings, um, particularly for people who are just getting into the life story business or who want to take it to another level. So I hope you enjoyed our conversation and I hope it gave you ideas that you can take back to your own business and grow your business. If you have any feedback or any questions about today's episode, head over to the show notes and share them in the comments. And if today's show was helpful, the best way you can return the favor is to leave us a review on iTunes. I'm Amy Woods Butler, personal historian and life story writer, and your coach for building your own professional life story business. Now go out and save someone's story.